0: like to begin with um, offering a chant. It's uh, traditional in the monastic traditions to uh, offer respects to the Buddha and um, the lineage before offering a teaching. So I'd like to begin that way. Uh, and the melody of this um, I learned from um, uh, from a Buddhist nun who lives in uh, in Canada. <coughs>
1: Bhagavad Gita
0: So how's the withdrawal? <laughs> Is it uh kicking in yet or are you still doing all right? It's been okay. So I wanted to explore tonight a little bit um why we do this? What 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 compels us to leave our life behind? For a period of time, whether it's a few days or longer, sometimes a few weeks um, and look within it's, uh, you know, not a lot of people <laughs> do this and uh, most people spend um, spend their life chasing after things being entertained and riding the roller coaster of gain and loss, pleasure and pain, and fame and disrepute, praise and blame. So uh, at a certain point, oftentimes we get spun out enough and turned around by those changing conditions that something Something in us uh, kind of starts wondering what's going on, if there's another way to do this whole thing. I want to start by telling you a story. This is, um, I've heard this story told um, and been attributed to different cultures, so I get the sense that it's uh, kind of an ancient story that might might have crossed different cultures uh, one of the versions i know comes from turkey and uh it's a story of um a very um poor man uh who uh made a living uh, kind of selling junk kind of pulling together old uh, old wares and fixing them up and selling them and just barely scraping by and uh, always, always wishing that he had more to offer to his family, to his wife, that you know they weren't uh, living from, from day to day, from meal to meal. And one day he had a dream that he should go to Egypt. Uh, and every night as he would fall asleep, he would pray, he would pray that something would deliver him and and would turn his fortunes around turn his turn his night into day and uh, so he had this dream one night that he should go to Egypt and if he went to Egypt that he would uh, his fortunes would turn and that he would have uh, enough wealth to live with ease and take care of his family and the dream was so vivid it was so powerful and real uh that he couldn't get it out of his mind. And he kind of became a little bit obsessed with it. And uh, to the point where when his wife would come, he would come home and his wife would ask, did you go to the market and get bread? He would, in his mind, almost imagine she was saying, did you go to Egypt yet? Every time she asked, you know, do we have enough food or where are we going to get the next meal from? And so, uh, so finally one day, when things were really, really hard, and it looked like they weren't going to be able to get through the next next week, he decided that this is it. I have to go. You know, I don't, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. And he explained to his wife, uh, who thought he was crazy, and um, made his way to uh, south to the Mediterranean and got a got on a ship, and went across to Egypt. And the story goes that he uh he landed at the port and uh started travelling and wandering around, not sure where to go, but asking for guidance and uh things went from bad to worse, and he ended up in a small village uh, kind of on the edge of the desert, without any money, without any food uh, and he ran into uh a, vill- a man in the village there. The man in the village asks him and says, well, what are you doing here? He explains, you know, I'm from Turkey and this is, you know, I'm a, I am live from day to day just selling wares. And uh, it's always been a challenge. It's always been hard. I've never quite been able to support my family or live with a sense of... Uh, security knowing that things would be okay and one day i had a dream to come to egypt and that this would this would resolve things that would change my fortunes and the man he's talking to starts laughing and says you're crazy <laughs> if i followed every dream i had you know i would have gotten on a ship and gone to turkey i had a dream that in Turkey, in this one town at the edge of a great wall stood a large oak tree, and that underneath the oak tree was buried a great treasure. He says, I've had that dream for years now. As clear as day, I can see it in my mind. But I'm no fool. I know where my place is, and I stay here. And so the man from Turkey listened with interest, and he knew that place he was describing. That's his town. And that great tree by the wall is a tree on his property. And so he thanked the man. And he made his way back to the port. He worked for long enough to get enough money to buy ticket on a passage back across the Mediterranean. And he assumed his wife would have died of starvation or been lost, but she was still there. She'd managed to get by. And sure enough, the next day, after resting, he got out his shovel and his pickaxe, and he started digging underneath the tree, the great oak tree, in his yard. And sure enough, there in the ground, he found a great old trunk, within which was a vast trove of treasure. And so his fortunes turned. So this is, this is obviously a parable of the spiritual journey, of our, uh, our search for true wealth, of our search for security, well-being and happiness. and there's a dream there's there's a sense that there's something possible that there's uh, a way to live that's different than what we know that can that can bring a sense of fulfillment for our deepest longing. And that dream often compels us to travel, to go on a journey, whether that's a journey outside or within. And in a certain sense, we need to leave home. We need to go on a journey. We need to, we need to look. We need to travel to a distant land in some way. But of course, in the end, what we find is that the, the treasure that we are seeking was always right here, that it was within our own home, that we never had to go anywhere. So that there's a treasure, there's something of incredibly incredible value, something incredibly precious that waits for each of us. And this is not the story that that we that we are told generally in our society. We hear a lot of other stories about what will make us happy. And I know for myself that that coming onto this path and doing uh, doing the very hard work of this of this practice. Was inspired by a sense of disillusionment with those stories. And from a very early age, actually, I can remember being seven, maybe eight years old, and saying to my mom, you know, if the whole point of going to school is to go to college so you can get a good job and then have a family. Why do I have to wait so long? Why can't I get why can't I get going? Like why can't I get on with it? And I got I got the I got the the program, you know, go through all these steps, graduate, get a job, get a family, and that's that's the place to get to. Right? And then in high school feeling like everything was pointing to the future. Everything was everything was always preparing you for the next thing, right? You had to do well in high school so that you could get into a good college. You have to go to a good college so that you can get a good job and you want to get a good job, so on and on and on and on and on. And the sense of, well, like, when do I get to live? When do I actually get to enjoy any of it? There's, I think so many of the messages of our society... Um, Point us in the wrong direction. Uh, that our, our, they locate our sense of value or self-worth or the goal um, of life in in external things that don't actually deliver. Right. So you know if we step back and look at it and say, well, what are the what are the what's the story? What's the story we're told of? what will make us happy and what life is supposed to be. So, first of all, you're supposed to be attractive, right? You're supposed to look a certain way. Your body's supposed to be a certain shape, and you're supposed to be young. God forbid you should actually get old. If you're old, it's somehow somehow like this personal moral failing. (laughs) So we live in a culture that's obsessed with youth, you know, and you just start to look at some of the uh, advertisements and um, the kind of beauty and health industry. It's like anti-aging, as if aging is this unnatural thing that's not supposed to happen that we have to fight. And we're we're given to believe that our uh, our happiness is dependent on. Uh, material success, by how much we can accumulate, right? The amount of money you have, the kinds of things we have, how nice they are, our role, how many letters are after your name, our status or title. And again, if you're not on that side of things, then there's something wrong, something wrong with us Personally. It's somehow a reflection of um, of our intelligence or our um, our abilities. We live in an expert culture where, in order to to be um, to have a sense of uh, Feeling worthy, we have to be an expert in something. What do you know? What's your area of expertise? That somehow possessing knowledge or information will protect us against the uncertainties of life or will somehow fulfill us. And again, the sense of accumulating. Or accumulating experiences going to travel? Have you done this? Have you been there? Have you seen that? Have you had this kind of food? Have you eaten that kind of cuisine? And that somehow the more experiences we have, the more places we visit, the the happier we will be or the more uh, respected we will be. And does it ever deliver? It's like a mirage. All of these, all of these promises of fulfillment and happiness, through wealth, or recognition, or status, or material things, or traveling and having experiences. It's like a mirage. The closer you get, the further it recedes into the distance. And if you, and if you ever actually finally get there, it just vanishes. It never really arrives. There's a saying in the uh, in the Zen tradition, um, they talk about trying to eat a painted rice cake, trying to eat a painted rice cake. these These mirages of fulfillment are like painted rice cakes. They can't actually quench our thirst they can't fulfill this hunger this longing inside to feel whole or complete to feel a sense of security to feel a sense of being good enough being being enough just as i am and so we can spend our life chasing chasing after these and many people do Many, many people do. the Buddha said several thousand years ago, better than a hundred years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing their impermanence and spend our whole life chasing after these experiences that just come and go and never actually really seeing their emptiness and finding something more fulfilling, finding something deeper that's more enduring, finding this treasure. This is from uh, 1905 from Hermann Hesse, Hesse, the author, German author. The great masses of people these days live out their lives in a dull and loveless stupor. I believe what we lack is joy. Our ways of enjoying ourselves are hardly less irritating and nerve-wracking than the pressure of our work. As much as possible and as fast as possible is the motto. 1905. And there is so much more and more entertainment and less and less joy. This morbid pursuit of enjoyment is spurred on by constant dissatisfaction and yet perpetually satiated. The high value put upon every minute of time, the idea of hurry, hurry as the most important objective of living is unquestionably the most dangerous enemy of joy. So you think about what was happening 100 years ago in terms of the Industrial Revolution and the kind of really the engines literally and figuratively of capitalism and progress rolling across the world. And here we are today, 113 years later, as much as possible, as fast as possible, right? So it's almost like the whole Western world is kind of operating in this trance, this delusion of trying to get somewhere, chasing after this mirage, thinking that it's finally going to arrive one day, if we can just go fast enough, if we can just accumulate enough, if we can just hold on to enough, if we can just learn enough. Sometimes when I'm... um, just out and about, I, I like to look for the messages, the actual messages that we get through the media or advertising that perpetuate this this cycle. So um, I saw one on a plane that said uh, something to the effect of it's like uh, time to go to your happy place. Hint hint it's in the touch screen in front of you. Right? So here so there you go like wh- how do we f- how how can we feel happy? How can we feel relieved? Push a button. Get distracted. Disappear into this image. Or another one um, I can't remember which company this ad was for but the the slogan was take the waiting out of wanting. <laughs> Take the waiting out of wantings. Instant gratification. I can get what I want right now. I don't even have to wait. Right? And so this is, this is what, we're, what we're plugged into literally every day through technology is this instant touchscreen appearance, right? I mean, you remember like 10 years ago how slow the internet was? And today it's like if it takes more than a second for a website to load, we're like, okay, come on, what's going on? So our our whole nervous system actually starts to get, like, attuned or wired to this expectation of this instantaneous response. Push a button, make it happen. Push a button, make it happen. That's not real. That's not life. Nature doesn't work that way. People don't work that way. You want to have a conversation with someone, it takes time. (laughs) Just even forming words takes time. It's very slow to speak. Reading's a lot faster. Thinking's even faster. But if you want to connect with someone, you actually have to take time. You have to listen to be present. If we want to do this practice, it takes time. We have to listen. We have to be present. It's not a push-button kind of thing. But everything around us has been uh, operating on this uh, assumption as much as possible, as fast as possible, is better. So when you go to Starbucks, you can order your drink before you get there on your phone so that when you arrive, you don't even have to wait. You just come in, you come out, and you leave. And if it's not ready, it's like a problem. You know, I thought I'd, I downloaded the app. I did the thing. How come my drink's not here, right? Do we see the madness of this? And we wonder why we're so impatient. We wonder why we can't sit still for half an hour without going bananas inside. So this um, this age that we're living in, in which everything is becoming systematized, everything is becoming mechanized and systematized to be as efficient as possible, without that sense of... Uh, Recognition of that which is natural, that which is organic. We are natural. We are organic. But our very minds and hearts begin to become systematized and mechanized by the, by the world around us. So we have to get to work by 8 o'clock. So we're rushing to get there. So as we're getting ready for the day, we're looking at the clock, we're trying to move quickly. We're trying to force something that is organic, something that is existing in time and space and moving mm-hmm. at its own pace. We're trying to get it to fit into numbers which are imaginary. It's just a convention that we agree upon. We punch in, we punch out go to work for this many hours, to get paid this many dollars, in order to have enough money to pay off the mortgage, to have enough food, to da 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 and everything becomes uh, again about getting there, arriving at some distant goal, and then we lose the sense of the journey, the sense of aliveness, the sense of embodiment. And then it's not only on an individual level, obviously there's, that this is happening, but it's happening to uh, to whole communities. It's happening to the planet. So the uh, the extraction um, paradigm get as much as I can. This is, this is the paradigm of our of our age to to um, to extract as much pleasure and profit as we can from whatever it is again efficiency as much as possible as fast as possible so we see you know the our whole society built on uh, the availability of um, uh, energy through uh, hydrocarbons, through natural natural gas and oil, this ability to have massive amounts of energy to produce things is about extracting resource from the earth. And so, how do we relate to our life? How do we relate to our relationships? How do we relate to our spiritual practice? Do, do we come with this sense of you know, give me the good stuff. Right? How impatient do we get with a friend or a co-worker when they're not delivering, when they're not producing, when they're not following the program of showing up, making it as quick as possible, as efficient as possible? How do we treat ourselves when we're not Operating In that way You know when you have a day Where you're feeling tired Or you're a little bit down And you can't get things done Right How much do we push How much do we beat ourselves up Come on Come on Get it together You should be getting more done Right We're not machines <laughs> We don't work that way you know? do you Look out at the trees Are they Are they on a schedule Gotta grow more leaves Not pumping enough out <laughs> You know and we come to this practice you know are we trying to squeeze something out of it are we trying to get something and then feeling frustrated when we're not feeling the peacefulness or the calm or the insight that we that we want So this whole kind of um, sea of um, kind of pressures that we're swimming in, that that are forming our minds, our thoughts, our our habits, that can be uh, so pervasive we don't even see it. It's like the air we breathe. You know the story of the the two young fish swimming? And they swim by an old fish. And the old fish says, Nice water today, huh? And the young fish say, Yeah. And then a little while later, one fish turns to the other and says, What's water? Okay. Okay. We're swimming in it. We don't even see it. Until something wakes us up. Until we have a dream that says there's a treasure somewhere. Until we recognize this is not working. There's another way. This is not how I was meant to live. This can come about in many different ways. It can come about through having a flash of insight, seeing something clearly, having a moment where we feel a sense of peace or connection or love or joy. It's not about getting something, it's not about having an experience or winning, that just kind of wells up from within. I remember when I was very small, um, lying in the backyard of our house, and looking up at the sky. And for the first time, realizing that clouds move. they had always just been pictures In the sky, pictures in the book, you know, it's just these big puffy white things that are there in the blue sky. I'm just lying on my back, just staring up at the sky, not doing anything. I said, Oh, clouds move. It's a moment of insight, of understanding the nature of things. They change, it's not fixed. Sometimes what wakes us up out of the trance is pain, is difficulty, a challenge, you know. We lose someone we love, where things fall apart in some way. We lose a job, we get sick, we lose a lot of money, we lose our reputation, you know. People don't go on a spiritual journey when uh, everything's going their way. (laughs) Very few people turn to spirituality or religion or philosophy and ask the deeper questions when they're on the upswing because everything's going great. (laughs) Why look any further, right? It's it's when the fortunes turn the other way and you start on the down cycle. You start going, "Uh uh-oh, something's not quite working here. And so, what do we do? Either we either we try to we try to get to the next the next one going up as quickly as possible to get out of that, or we start investigating. We start seeing what's going on here. So there's um there's a legend, another legend. This one comes from the Buddhist tradition of uh, of how the Buddha ended up on his journey. And uh, the story goes that um, he was uh, he was part of in the in the caste system in India. he was part of the uh, the war the I think it's the warrior caste, the not the Brahmins which is the highest, but the next one down. and his family was was a royal family they were a ruling family of this one particular region in what's now. North India and southern Nepal, and so uh, they were very affluent. And it's said that when he uh, when he was born, uh, there was a prophecy. Some uh, some wise uh, seers came and prophesied that he would either be um, a great ruler, an all conquering ruler of the world, or a great sage and teacher. And so his father, who was the king, said, Well, I know I know which one I want. I want him to take over. You know, I want him to be a ruler. And uh, so because of this prophecy, the father did everything he could to keep his son happy. His name was um, uh, Siddhartha Gotama. to keep him happy. And so the story goes that they had three different palaces one for each season so that they would move based on the weather to wherever it was most comfortable and that the father would send the gardeners out at night and early in the morning before his son woke up to pluck all of the dead flowers or dying flowers from the from the trees and the bushes in the garden so that he would never have to see even a flower that was fading or wilting and he had min- um. Music and entertainment and food and um, fine cloth from Benares and and, um, sandalwood oil for his skin Um, and uh, it's there's a portion in the texts where he talks about how delicate his uh, his hands and his feet were and so you know if you've ever worked outside with your hands if you worked in a garden or if you've done physical labor. know after just a few days you start to get calluses and you get cuts and you got dirt under your nails so you know when we work outside the body toughens up pretty quick and uh you also know if you've ever worked inside you know at a desk job or you know not working with your hands how um uh, how kind of tender the skin gets you know so he's talking about just how tender all of his skin was from never having to work. And so the story goes that um, one day he uh, he wanted to go into town, and so he went with his charioteer into town, and his father, uh, you know, tried to clear the streets of anything that would disturb his um, his peace of mind, anything that would make him at all unhappy. And so, on his first trip into town, it said that he saw, uh, by the side of the road, a very, very elderly person. Uh, you read the texts; you can imagine someone in their, you know, must have been in their nineties or a hundred. A kind of this description of somebody stooped over with age, um, and. Uh, He'd never seen an old person before. And so he says to his charioteer, what's wrong with that person? You know, why are they bent over? Why is their skin, you know, ashen and their hair gray and uh, their skin wrinkled? And he says, well, this person is old. They've lived a certain number of years and they've aged. And the prince asked, will this happen to others that I know? And he says, yes. Will this happen to me? yes this happens to everyone everyone ages and so siddhartha was so kind of taken aback and shocked by this that he asked the charioteer to turn around and go back to the palace he was so disturbed by this thought that not only would this there was this person suffering from the body breaking down but that everyone he knew and loved and even himself would have to go through this And it's said elsewhere in the text that when he considered this, when he really looked at it closely and considered it, he says, the vanity of youth left me. The intoxication with youth left me. That sense of being preoccupied with being young. And so the story goes that he went, went out a second time with his charioteer. He said, I'd like to go out into town again. And on the second trip, he saw another person doubled over, moaning. And asked the charity, what's wrong, with this? what's wrong with this person? They weren't old, but they were in pain, and their body looked contorted, their face looked contorted. And he said, well, this person is sick. They have some kind of an illness. And again, the same series of questions. Will this happen to others? Says, yes, it happens to everyone at some point. Will this happen to me? Probably. Everyone gets sick sometimes. And again, he was so disturbed that he couldn't go further into town, and they went back to the palace. And so it's said that as he contemplated this and realized that uh, sickness is part of being alive, he says, the vanity of health, the intoxication with health left me. Sense of the way we can get so obsessed with being healthy, you know, taking the right supplements and eating the right food, and all the whole kind of program of fighting the process of getting sick or getting old. So then he goes into the town a third time, and on the third trip, he sees a corpse. He sees a body lying by the side of the road and he asks the charioteer what's wrong with this person and the charioteer says, this person has passed away, they're dead. And again, will this happen to everyone? Will this happen to me? Yes. Now Siddhartha was really disturbed. He says, everyone I know, everyone I love, myself included, will get old, will get sick, and will die. And we're all just walking around like everything's fine. Why? What's going on? How come no one's talking about this? How come no one's dealing with this? So one more time, he decides to go into town with his charioteer. And so they go into the town. And this time he sees what's known in in India as a samana. And a samana means a renunciate, a seeker. A, a renunciate A seeker Somebody who's not living the life of a householder Who doesn't have a family and a job But who's on a spiritual quest And it said that he saw this seeker And that Their face was so serene So peaceful and calm That it touched something inside of him Something inside kind of quivered And realized This person knows something that I want to know. And he had the inkling that there was a way, that there was a way to understand this process of being human, of aging and growing old and eventually passing away and losing the things that we love that he could discover. And so these four uh, experiences of seeing a sick person, an old person, a dead person, a corpse, and a seeker, a renunciate. These are known as the four heavenly messengers, Devadutta, heavenly messengers, because they awaken us if we know how to see them. They awaken us to the realities of being alive. They each of these can be a call to the journey just like that dream that the man had something that indicates wake up don't go back to sleep don't just keep chasing after the story that our world tells us will solve all your problems and make you happy So how do we hear that message? What is, it that, what is it that wakes us up to that? What was it for you that lets us hear that call? And not everyone hears it. Not everyone has that experience. It's said in the texts, that uh, the Buddhist texts, that hardship, difficulty in life, goes in one of two directions. Suffering and hardship can either lead to bewilderment or to search. Hardship leads to bewilderment or to search. We either get lost, we get turned around, or we start looking. We start asking the deeper questions and saying, What's going on here? How can I find something More meaningful, more enduring, and then if we're lucky, we see a samana. We 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 come in contact with, with a message, something that represents a path that we can follow. We pick up a book. We read an article. We hear someone speak, and it stimulates something in us. There's another story from ancient India of a king, a king by the name of Ashoka, who was a great conqueror. He was, uh, uh, conquered vast portions of India very uh, forcefully through war. A lot of people were killed. And it's said that after one battle he was walking uh, through the battlefield and just witnessing the carnage of, of bodies. And he was so disturbed by the violence and the, uh, the suffering that had been inflicted. He was terribly distraught. And he happened to see, at that moment, there happened to be a monk, a Buddhist monk, walking through the field, very, very peacefully, very quietly. And when he saw this this monk, something in him woke up. He was so moved by the, the demeanor and the peacefulness of this person that he gave up his mission of conquest and fighting, and he became um, one of the greatest patron saints of Buddhism he became a peaceful king, and he supported Buddhism throughout uh, that whole region that he had conquered in India, erected pillars throughout India with sayings of the Buddha, some of which are still um, uh, still present to this day. And so just from that one encounter of seeing someone who was living uh, this path, and had um, was embodying this quality of peacefulness.
1: So there's a lot of, uh,
0: a lot of difficulty uh, in our country and on our planet today. And, uh, I know I'm not the only one here who's troubled by what's happening all over the world. And this practice isn't the answer to everything. It's not going to solve all the problems, but it's a piece. It's a piece of the puzzle. If we, can, if we can find that peacefulness, that calm inside, if we can find a stability to meet the changes and the challenges that are happening, we provide a basis for others. We provide like an island of peace to start doing our work from. Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you do not begin your peace work here, where will you go to begin it? To sit, to smile, to look at things and really see them, this is the basis of peace work. I want to end with um, a poem by Mary Oliver, some of you probably familiar with, called The Journey. One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began, though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough, and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world. Determined to do the only thing you could do. Determined to save the only life you could save. So let's just sit together for a moment.
1: for listening. If you'd like
0: to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsilver.com
1: forward slash support. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.